People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Janice Mitchell, the author of My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Banned in Cleveland. In 1964, as a teenager, Janice became an international news story when she ran away from home to England to meet the Beatles. Her story captured the attention of the world and even the Beatles themselves wound up looking for her. But her journey didn't end there. Upon returning to the U.S., her experience led to a controversial decision that would make history in her hometown of Cleveland. Today, Janice will share her incredible story with us, giving us a glimpse into the life of a young girl caught up in the excitement of Beatlemania and the unexpected consequences that followed. Hey, Janice. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. It's going great. I read your book, My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Banned in Cleveland. What an amazing story it tells. I have so many questions to ask you about the book. Can you start by telling us how you first heard the Beatles and what your life was like at the time when you decided to run away to meet them? Well, when I was a kid, which was a while ago, uh, I well, I, I grew up. I was a, a Cleveland kid that came from a family with some problems until I was age seven, and then from age seven to when I left Cleveland at age sixteen, um, you know, I was a Catholic school girl. Uh, went to church, prayed. We didn't really have any technology in those days. We had a phone on the wall with a curly cord. And uh, our Google back then was the library. So I spent a lot of time at the library. I was a reader. I loved to read. Nancy Drew was my hero. And um, as far as music went, we just had, you know, whatever little stations were on the radio, I think they were like, Three stations that had music. Wasn't really into music when I was a kid because we spent a lot of time outside in those days. You know, we did a lot of walking, biking, activities, roller skating, totally unlike what life is today where kids are plugged in, you know, they're watching the internet stuff. We didn't have that. We had freedom, fresh air. And uh, in the, in the wintertime, when it snowed, we were out there you know, having snowball fights and building snow forts and just having fun. So music for me uh, didn't really appeal until actually uh, when I was listening to the radio doing my homework because we had transistor radios then and it was just a big antenna that you pulled up, you know, and tried to get a radio station in. So, um, you know, the music would be on kind of in the background. There was nothing too exciting about music in those days, but we didn't know any better. <laughs> one of the number one hit songs 
was in 1963 was uh, a song called Dominique, sung by a nun in French who accompanied herself on acoustic guitar. And that actually reached number one. So that kind of tells you what it was like back then. But there was a lot of good music. But what really changed everything was the day after Christmas in 1963, I'm listening to the radio doing some homework. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> there was this was this song by this group. And I mean, it just threw me for a loop. It was they were called the Beatles. The song was I Wanna Hold Your Hand. And that was the first time, first experience I had with them. And it was totally, it changed my life. Every from that moment on, changed my DNA. I like jumped up, almost knocked my chair over to grab the telephone to call the radio station, which you could do in those days, ask the DJ, can you please play that song again? And who are they? Who are these Beatles? But I think every kid in Cleveland was calling because all we got, all I got was a busy signal, like over and over and over again. A busy signal for you kids who don't know what that is, is when you would call somebody on the phone and they'd be on the phone and there was no way to get through because there was no caller ID and there was nothing. So you just had to try again. <clears throat> So that was the uh, the remarkable moment. It changed my life. It was the British invasion. It was the Beatles. They were everything. That must have just felt so magical when that happened. And when that song hit the airwaves and when Beatlemania started sweeping across the United States, what did that atmosphere feel like to you? Well, I mean, we didn't really actually know the words Beatlemania, how we would find out about the Beatles is by Beatle magazines and teen magazines that you would buy at the corner drugstores. And then they started having um, bubblegum cards with each card had a Beatle in it and a little story about the Beatles. And then, then came the records. You could go to the record store, you know, and buy a record and read about them on the back cover of the record album. And now everybody was talking about the Beatles. And um, we were making up stories about our Beatle who was your favorite Beatle? I'm walking down the street hand in hand with Paul and George and I are planning our wedding and all this kind of stuff. This is what kids did. We didn't have, we didn't have pods to listen to or any, we made up our own. At the height of all of this hysteria about the Beatles, the Rolling Stones followed them to America as well. And in your book, you tell this really cool story about how you actually met the Rolling Stones and an encounter as well. And if anyone listening hasn't read this book yet, check it out because this story is really cool. But Janice, during this time, you actually decided to leave Cleveland. Oh, yeah. My best friend, my best Beatle friend and I, we decided that we each, you know, had really crummy lives. And um, I was reading in a Beatle magazine, the Beatles hung out in a section in London called Soho, where there were all these clubs they could go to, where the kids could go to. And I remember telling my friend Marty, I said, look what I found. Oh, my gosh. We were, of course, in her bedroom with the record player and the records, and we're listening to Beatles songs and reading Beatle magazines. I said, look, look what they put in a magazine, where the Beatles hang out. They say nobody bothers them. This place called Soho. I said, look, we have to go there. And I remember she said, what do you mean go where? I said, there. We have to leave home to find a better life in a beetle land. That's what I started calling it. So that's where we started really thinking that we were going to do this. 
And we knew that we heard that the, um, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan's show, February 9th, 1964, it was the first time when we could actually see them, you know, moving around like real. But TVs were a lot littler then and only black and white. It was another monumental moment in our lives in 1964 to see the Beatles on television. Then another dream came true that the Beatles were actually coming to Cleveland, September 15th, 1964. And um, the tickets were going to be offered through a radio station, WHK, and all the information how to try and get a ticket was printed in the newspaper. Also, they would talk about it on the radio. So as soon as I got the newspaper and I saw what we had to do, we had to send in a, a postcard with four cents on it to be addressed exactly the way that they wanted because the postcards were going to be fed into an IBM computer. This was like groundbreaking stuff to actually use a computer to decide, you know, who would get actually a letter in the mail saying that you have won uh, a place you could go and actually buy tickets. That's the only way you could get tickets was to get a letter. So I determined, I said, look, we're sending in our postcards. And no matter what, I'm getting a letter. I'm getting a letter because I have to go. So I were sending the envelopes with our letters with no return address because they were afraid people were going to steal these envelopes and get these letters. So that's what uh, we, I got a letter and she got a letter. So that was the first time that I, I lied to my great aunt that I was going to be spending the night at her house and she was going to spend the night at my house because I told my friend, I said, look, the only way we're going to get the best seats is to be the first ones online, which meant to me, we had to go at night and stand in front of the building and wait till nine o'clock in the morning. This is the first time probably that kids did this, you know, to get tickets. So that's what we did. <laughs> got my got my tickets front row center that's what I asked for and uh then it was the Beatles concert the next morning we already had everything in place passports CWA one-way tickets money that she withdrew from the bank that was her college fund <laughs> that we were using to you know to have our trip she said oh I never wanted to go to college anyway this would be so much better and I said, yeah, you know. <laughs> so the morning after the Beatles concert, instead of going to school, we got in a taxi with our suitcases with all of our clothes in it, headed to the airport and flew and landed in London at like around seven o'clock in the morning without telling anybody that we were leaving. Wow. And what was it like for you planning all of this? How did you manage all of those logistics? wasn't that hard because actually if you're 16 years old, you can apply for a U.S. passport without anybody else. You can do it on your own. So getting the passport application, which I got at the library, of course, uh, that was easy. Um, packing, taking my clothes over to my friend's house, putting them in my suitcase, which we kept under her bed because her mother went to work and... Um, she was, you know, <laughs> it was a lot easier to do it at her house. So that we had the passports. And then the last thing that we needed was to know that we were going to actually go to the concert so we could buy our tickets to leave the next day. I said, well, what are we going to wait for? Let's just go well, the next morning. 
There's nothing else to stay here for. So she agreed. So she takes the money out of the bank. We walk across the street to the TWA ticket office and we ask for two one-way tickets for London. And they give we they sell us our tickets, which they weren't supposed to, but we didn't know that. So yeah, it was it all just happened. Uh, uh, the planning I did was really good. <laughs> and the money she provided was perfect. So it just worked out so smoothly. Mm -hmm. Now, kids can't do that today. It can't happen, you know, because of the internet and cameras and all that tracking and everything. So we had the advantage of being of living in a time where there was freedom. You could just do whatever you wanted to do pretty much. But today you can't do that. People would find us at, before we wouldn't even get out of the airport. Yeah, that's very true. And when you first arrived in London, what were you feeling? What was going through your head? I'm, I'm, I've arrived. This is it. This is my new life now. going to start living my life that I want to live. I felt perfect. I didn't make any plans after arriving at Heathrow because I just knew everything was going to work out after that. I wasn't even worried. And in your book, you mentioned that one of the first things you did in London was actually stop by a church to pray. What role did faith play in your journey overseas? Well, I was Catholic. You know, I went to Catholic school. Uh, I went to church every Sunday, you know, did all the stuff you were supposed to do as a Catholic teenager. So praying was a big part of my life, still is. And when I was there, you know, I realized I had not gone to Sunday Mass. So that was kind of a Catholic sin. So I had to make sure that I could see, could find a Catholic church to at least go in. I knew God would understand, obviously, you know, what I was doing. He'd be fine with it. I never forgot him and he never forgot me. And I knew that. So I figured he was okay with me missing mass that one Sunday. You were away from home for quite some time. When was the first time on your journey that you realized, wow, I'm an international news story? Well, at the end of the journey, we had no idea while we were there during that those 23 days, we didn't know anybody was even looking for us. I figured my family were probably happy I was gone. Uh, we didn't have a TV in our little studio flat or a radio. And who read newspapers? Nobody. It was boring. We were living the life that we had wanted to live. So what what was there to read about? We were doing it. So I didn't, we didn't know. We had no idea. I know we touched on this earlier, but I'd like to ask you directly, how do you think it would be different today? No, you couldn't get away with it today. No, because pa passports, checking in, you know, at PSA security and all that, it would be, it's impossible. You can't even buy a ticket without having your passport and your number and all that, which you didn't have to do back then. You just bought a ticket different world now. So at the end of your journey, what was it like for you to realize that the Beatles were actually looking for you at the same time you were looking for them? Well, we didn't know about that until, until we were actually at the police station. Uh, and one of the police officers said, oh, well, you know, we had a pool going for who was going to be the first first police officer to find you. I said, well, what do you mean? 
He said, yeah, didn't you know that you were like, there was an international search for you two Beatle girls? I said, no, what are, you, what are you talking about? He says, well, here's some newspapers and you can see for yourself. And it was like newspaper after newspaper, headlines every day we were being searched for, you know. And um, when I saw, you know, Beatles joined search, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, the Beatles knew about us. They were looking for us. It was so shocking. Really had no idea how big it was or how people were looking for us. Scotland Yard, everything. Yeah. And while you were in England, did you travel anywhere else outside of London? Well, of course, we went to Soho right away. And we, the first club we went to was the Marquee Club, where we met two boys who were musicians from Liverpool. So we started hanging out with them, you know, like we'd meet up with them and go to different clubs. And uh, I said how much we wanted to go to Liverpool, you know, to see the Cavern Club, because that's where the Beatles were from. And the Cavern Club was the club they were best known for playing in. So um, after a little bit, the boys said, well, they were going to Liverpool and would we like to hitchhike with them, which we did. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> we hitchhiked with them to Liverpool. Wow. So that's as far as we got, Liverpool. And what was your hitchhiking experience like? It was Let's see, somewhere between terrifying and exhilarating at the same time, because I had never done anything like that. You know, we're out there on the road. We actually slept in a bean field because we couldn't get a ride late at night. And waking up and looking up at the sky, I'll never forget how the sky was so clear, just studded with stars, just looked like diamonds, really. It was just so beautiful pure and clear and clean and lovely. I loved it. I really loved it. I wouldn't do it today, but then it was just a gorgeous experience. So tell me about your experience there. What was Liverpool like for you? Well, we were actually pretty tired by the time we got there. And uh, it was very different from London. You could see the effects of World War II, which Liverpool suffered a great deal under that. You know, they were bombed out. But the people were very hardy and resilient and down to earth. People were just so friendly and nice, you know, and hardworking because kids had jobs in Liverpool because their parents and their families had lost so much. They had to work. A lot of them didn't get to go to school. You know, they just worked. And they. Uh, what I loved about the kids in London and Liverpool I really related to them because they were so independent, you know, and on their own and living their lives. And, and uh, they had a lot of freedom over there and they were more mature than the kids, say, back in Cleveland, you know, that were under your school and your church and your family's thumb. Over there, they didn't have that so much. They kind of did what they wanted to do, which was work and enjoy their music, which there was so much music like live music all the time, every night. And it was just wonderful. I loved it there a lot. I never wanted to leave. But eventually when you did leave and you came back to the States, what was the reaction from your town like and the adults around you? Oh, it couldn't have been more different than in London. In London, I mean, the police and everybody, they just, and the United States Embassy, they just treated us like, well, 
that was fun. You had a lark, you know, and now they want you to come back to Cleveland and we have to, you know, help you get back. We weren't under arrest or anything like that. They, they reiterated how we had done nothing wrong at all, but because Cleveland Heights Police Department requested our return, I'll just put it that way, uh, they had to make sure we came home. But when we came back to the United States, we were treated like criminals. It was unbelievable because, you know, here we are, two girls, normal, you know, before we did this. We dared to step outside the box, and they wanted to make sure that we were severely punished for what we did. And they made sure that that happened. It was a complete night and day, night and day. Yeah. With the night being in Cleveland, of course, and the day being in England. <laughs> right. <laughs> and how did you deal with that? There was nothing much I could do except, you know, cooperate and go along with it. I had no choice. But it, my life was very grim from that moment forward in Cleveland. And uh, we weren't allowed to speak about it. You know, we had to go to court. The judge was very harsh and made sure that when we were in juvenile court that he invited the news people into the courtroom, which that's another unheard of thing today. So he could make his statement, Judge Gagliardo, that uh, he had taken his daughter to that same Beatles concert that we went to. And he was appalled by the behavior that he saw of the young people there. And it was really crazy, I have to say, yelling and screaming and crying, you know, and trying to get up on the stage and everything. It was just awful. The screaming was so loud, I couldn't hear anything that the Beatles were singing, you know. I was very disappointed in the behavior of the girls who, in my opinion, they were ruining the whole concert. So anyway, the judge was appalled by what he saw, and so he took the opportunity to make a statement about rock and roll music. Now, before this music, we, my friend and I had been normal, but after the music, look what we did, you know, and rock and roll music was like a drug, you know, and led to could lead to riots and all kinds of terrible behavior, which actually in hindsight, he wasn't wrong about that, but he, um, he decided to, you know, to punish us. And, uh, you know, they wanted to make an example out of us, really. First of all, we're girls. Girls don't act that way back then. That was a total no-no. So we had to be punished, I think, more severely. Now, if we had been boys, I don't think this type of punishment and newspaper statements and announcements and everything would have happened, but it did. And um, the next morning, uh, the mayor of Cleveland, based on what we had done, decided to ban Beatlemania and rock and roll in all Cleveland public venues. So that's how Cleveland got rock and roll and Beatlemania got banned because what we, I'm sorry, my fault. So yeah, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> the irony of it is now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. That's right. <laughs> so rock and roll wins. <laughs> I mean, that is just a wild story to say the least. Yeah. Uh, like I'm, I'm wondering, do you feel any disconnect looking back at that story? Does it feel like someone else? Or do you still feel very connected with that trip? I love everything about it. It's all in my book. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? It's called My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland. 
where can everyone who's listening find this book and what else can they learn from it? Well, my ticket to ride, how I ran away to England to meet the Beatles and got rock and roll band in Cleveland, a true story from 1964. Um, it's all true. And some of the interesting things in here, I was like, the first one and two pages is filled with newspaper headlines that were actually in the newspaper in those days, like Girls Lost on Beetle Hunt, Beetlemania Lures Two Runaways to London, BJ Enlists in Search for Missing Beatles Fans, um, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, oh, Beetle Chasing Girls Get Cop Escort Home. Beatles fans' wings are clipped. Public hall to ban all Beatlemania. Beatles join search. Beatles join hunt for runaways. That's on the cover. And then there's uh, a lot of, you know, really good pictures inside of different clubs that we went to. Uh, some of the stuff, screaming Beatle fans. You know, I think it's kind of, it's a visual delight as well as a, a wonderful story that I think if you read it, I'm taking you along, you know, on my entire journey, you know, as if we're doing it together. And um, I think people will enjoy that aspect of it because I really did tell it as I was remembering it. And that's something that's absolutely achieved through the way you wrote it. I mean, I felt like I was along for that journey with you the whole time. Thank you. And and where can people find this book? Well, I think most commonly you can find it on Amazon.com really anywhere in the world, but it's also barnesandnoble.com, target.com, you know, good stores, you know, you can find it. And it's even in the um, Liverpool Beatles Museum on Matthew Street in Liverpool. They're carrying my book too. And looking back on the Beatles' whole career, are there any songs that are your favorite or any albums that are your favorite? Well, it's always going to be I Want to Hold Your Hand because that is a part of my DNA. You know, I love their first album, Introducing the Beatles, because I love the mono version of their early songs. It's just so, you know, so clear and crystal and there's nothing else added. You know, it's just them singing, you know, and playing their guitars and the drums. That's probably cl closest to my heart. But I love Revolver. You know, I love a lot of great songs. Uh, for fun, I love Rocky Raccoon. Uh, I love I love the big production of Live and Let Die, you know, Wings. That is just so great, you know. But then there's so many wonderful songs, you know. I mean, how can you? It's so hard to pick a favorite, but those just stand out to me just right now in this moment as I'm talking to you, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> they're all just so great. So, Janice, are you working on any new projects at the moment? Well, I am in some in some new projects that I'm not free to discuss at the moment. But I, if you go onto my website, which is Janice-Mitchell.com, you can read that I have a whole investigation career that followed when I was a journalist and then I got into investigations in New York City. And I'm writing about right now my first real investigation I worked on. It was an international investigation, so I'm working on that. And that I always, and I also have a second book set up. The first one may wind up being a podcast or a TV miniseries. I'm not sure how that's going to go. There's some people looking at that. And then next after that, my next project 
is my murder cases that I worked on in New York City, real murder cases. So I'm going to write about them through stories. Wow. Well, we can't wait to hear from you about these new projects, and we can keep updated with those on your website. Yeah, check out my website. And also I'm on Facebook. I have my Ticket to Ride fan book page. There's that. And yeah, so that's where I am right now. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I implore anyone who hasn't read it to read it. And I'll leave all of those links in the podcast description again. Well, and here it is again. This picture was when I was in the United States Embassy limousine being driven back to Heathrow Airport. We were being followed by what we would call today paparazzi because they all wanted to have... We actually had press conferences after we were brought back to the embassy in London and they were returning us and guys on motorcycles with cameras were taking our pictures while we were driving and one guy got up, one photographer got up close to me and he's going, Janice, Janice. And I just said, okay, hi. You know, I just gave him the smile and the wave. So that's, that's the cover. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jack. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There and Everywhere podcast. To find out more about Janice and her book, check out all the links included in the podcast description. If you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social media. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Thank you.